Ladies and gentlemen, we're continuing today in our sermon series on practical theology, uh, which is a series that we're kicking through basically to be a good juxtaposition to our last sermon series, which was basically impractical theology or heresy. So this year and this week, these next couple months, we should be working through some theology that is important for us to understand and things that will affect our lives in many different ways, right? But ways that are relatively practical that we can pull from and recognize that we can use in daily life. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Becca taught about sin as addiction, and it was wonderful, and she did a great job to the point there are people who were like, we want you to come and speak at our conferences, so she might do that at some point. Yeah. Uh, last week, I taught about evangelism, yet no one asked me to teach in a conference. Whatever. <laughs> All right. And this week, we're going to be walking into teaching on another topic. But before we get to that topic, story time. Story time. I like to emphasize important things up on the board there, hence story time. All right, so some of you will be able to relate well to this story. Some of you will not because of the life stages that we're in or things that you have been able to or unable to do or chose to do or chose not to do, right? But I've got to tell you a story about my life. Uh, I'm going to tell you about one of the times which my life changed the most I can ever imagine or understand. Like, I thought I understood different ways my life would change over time. Oh, at some point, I need to be more responsible because I'll have, like, a car and I can't hit people with it. Or, oh, at some point, I'll have a house and I probably shouldn't let it burn down or break. All right, like, I, I had these things in my mind, right? Someday, I'll be responsible for my own finances and my parents won't be able to bail me out all the time, right? I had these thoughts in my brain. But there was one thing that happened that changed me in ways I could never understand or imagine because I had no way to actually consider uh, how much it would change my life, right? And that is Anna, who, of Ring Pop fame, <laughs> who turned and just ran out a few seconds ago, right? Anna is my eldest kid, and Christy and I were looking forward to having kids. Uh, and we had heard all of the stories about how different it is and difficult it can be, but how good it is and wonderful, and we had no idea, right? But one day, we found out we were pregnant, and that was wonderful. And I'm like, oh, good, things are going to have to change. I'll fix the nursery up, right? I'll make sure there's no electrical outlets with things sticking out of them, right? I'll try and hide my knives. It's all good, right? <laughs> yeah, see, I've got this down, dadding, done, right? Uh, and then a little bit closer to the time came, and I'm like, okay, <clears throat> no, this is going to be difficult. I got this. I can figure out ways to make sure that my house is not broken, uh, make sure that I won't be able to just leave a child home unattended. I'll make sure that there are ways for people to watch her. I'm going to take a drink real quick. I don't know what just happened to my voice. Hold on a second. I have to take a, a, a Ted Cruz drink real quick. I think that was Marco Rubio, actually. Anywho. <coughs> All right, I'm back. Oh, a little bit closer. All right, I'm a little scared, but it's okay. Everything will be fine. Everything will be fine, right? And I know I've got to figure out, like, how my schedule's going to change, the way it'll affect me being a pastor. Like, all these things will change, right? Uh, got a little bit closer and a little bit closer, and I found out that Chris would have to have a C-section because of the way Anna decided to position herself and be giant, whatever, right? So, oh, Okay. Now I know what day I'm going to have a kid in advance, right? And time, which is a weird feeling, right? Oh, something's going to happen at 10.35 in three days. And it started to feel a little more real, right? And then we got to the hospital. And it's a whirlwind, just in case. If you guys aren't, whirlwind completely. Like, we got there, and they're like, all right, wait, we're going to take her back, and then Christy's gone. I'm like, all right, I'm just sitting here. And I'm like, put these things on. I'm like wearing scrubs. And then they sit me in a hallway by myself with no one else around. I'm like, don't worry, that door will open at some, point. at some point. You can go in. I'm like, okay, what's happening here? And what's happening here? I'm just by myself in a hallway just freaking out. Because here's the deal. At this point in my life, there was one person who really mattered to me. One person, and that's Christy, right? And I am the kind of person who Googles things. Uh, <laughs> and so I had before this Googled all the things that can go wrong during C-sections, Right? <laughs> And so I'm just sitting here freaking out a little bit that she's going to be okay, right? That she's going to be okay. While also wondering there's this other person that I haven't met yet that's probably going to factor pretty big into my life at some point. But hey, I'm worried about this one, that one, cool, right? Uh, and they bring me in to the operating theater. And they sit me down at, at Christie's head. And the docs are working. And uh, they're very fast. 
and I don't know what's happening. And then a baby is there, right? Just shows up. Like, oh, look at that, it's a child. I see it. I see it. I see her, right? And they take the baby over and set it in an incubator, which they do, like a little warming station where they get the baby all cleaned up and everything. And I'm just still sitting on my little stool, just waiting. Christy's here. The uh, IV trees are behind me. Uh, there's right, other things happening all around. And I'm just like, I don't know what I'm allowed to do. What am I supposed to do right now? Because there's a baby over there. I'm going to be about Christy, but there's a baby. I'm going to be about Christy. I'm a little worried, right? And I go, you can go. You can go to your daughter. I'm like, awesome. And I stand up to go over, and I promptly trip over Christy's IV tree and almost rip it out of her. And then all the surgeons just like, <laughs> just looking at me for a second. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. And I walk over, and I pick up my child for the first time, right? And I'm holding her. I'm looking at her so far away from Christy, just so you guys know, and I'm just staring at this kid. <laughs> and then and one, of the, one of the people in the opera room was like, you know, you can take her over for your wife to meet her. Go, oh, okay. Oh, here, here, here you go. <laughs> and so she got to meet her kid for the first time too, right? And I'd love to say that that's whenever my life changed for the most part, but it's not yet. That is not the point where my life changed. And you all are like, wait a minute, what? This story is about that. I'm like, no. Now, at that point, whenever I saw that kid and I saw uh, them fixing Christy back up and putting everything together and, and uh, a baby is here, at that point, there was one overwhelming emotion that just hit me that, that was completely overwhelming. And it was just, and that emotion was terror, just absolute terror. <laughs> you know, like, no, it's supposed to be joy. I'm like, no, I was freaked out because now there's a little person. There's a little person right here. And I remember that night whispering to Anna the story of creation and the gospel from the first day and just telling her about who Jesus is and what he's done for her already, right? I'm just going to let you know just in case. You'll be hearing more about this later, but you should probably know about it, okay? So I started walking her through that. And those nights were crazy and weird. Well, we didn't know, but this is a kid who chose not to sleep ever uh, and didn't for the first year of her life. Uh, we did not get a full night's sleep for a year. We prepare everyone who has kids for Annas now. <laughs> everyone prepare to have an Anna. My second kid was so nice. She slept after like three weeks. We were worried that she was just like passing out because all of a sudden she would be quiet for extended periods of time. And we would freak out and wake up and run over because like the other one yelled all the time, are you okay? Right? <laughs> oh, no. She would just like bat our hands away and go back to sleep. So we prepare people for Annas, and we pray they have Audras, right? Uh, yeah. But that still, those nights we were in the hospital were weird and crazy, but there were nice things about them. There were knowledgeable people who were around. There were doctors. There were lactation consultants. There were nurses. There were the, the staff who worked with the children. Like, everyone was there, and it was awesome. The day when my life actually changed was about two days later. Whenever they said, nope, now it's, now it's time for you to go. It's time for you to get out of this hospital. And at that point, I looked down at this pretty baby, and I realized, oh, my goodness, now it's on me. <laughs> like, these people kept her alive up to this point, and now it's my job to do so until she can do it for herself, right? And that freaked me out. You see, at that point, I learned the responsibility of having a kid. I already knew she wasn't mine, and I would not always have uh, her as my daughter. I know she'll be my daughter forever, but she's not mine, right? She doesn't belong to me. She belongs to Jesus. I knew that. But at that point, I learned that it's time for me to actually recognize that it's on me to properly care for her on his behalf. And I had to learn what that meant very quickly. Kind of like a crash course. That's whenever the weight hit me whenever she was my responsibility, right? So what are we talking about today? Anyone know? You were here, you don't count. You saw the slides. Go. Today we're talking about stewardship. Stewardship is a concept that is throughout the scriptures, woven throughout them, but very rarely appears in word form, right? Uh, the word is actually used in like one story in Greek, in the Gospels, and then a couple of times as titles for people, but it's a concept that runs throughout Scripture. It's kind of like Trinity in that respect, right? The Bible never says the word Trinity. It's not in there, but the concept of Trinity runs throughout Scripture, right? 
stewardship runs throughout Scripture. And to give us a, a base understanding of what we mean by stewardship, this is what I mean. Stewardship is recognizing that everything in the world, everything that you consider yours, everything that you consider yourself to have some form of control over, doesn't belong to you. Nothing I think of as mine is actually mine, right? My daughter is not my daughter. My house is not my house. My son, if I ever have a son, will not be my son. My dad is not my dad, right? They don't belong to me. Everything I have belongs to God. And it is my job to exercise responsible care over it on his behalf. That's what a steward is. A steward was someone who managed the household on behalf of its owner. And so it was a person who did not legally own the property, but it was the one whom the owner entrusted proper care of it to. Does that make sense? All right. So the main place where we see this concept in Scripture, the easiest place to see it is in Christ's parables. In the parable of the talents, we see this written. He's explaining what the kingdom of God is like and what the disciples' responsibility in the kingdom of God is like. All right? He says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he who also had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. And here I have two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received one talent, came forward saying, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has about the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast, into the, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <sighs> Such a story with weight in it whenever Christ is describing what the world is like. He describes the concept of a master, a household owner, a per person who is wealthy likely, who has a decent amount of money on him, and who has these three trusted servants, one who he trusts a lot, one who he trusts a little, one who he doesn't trust very much at all, and he hands responsibility to each of them, right? And he entrusts them to care for that appropriately. And we see in this parable that he sees those who do well with what he has handed, that he uh, praises them for the work they have done, says, well done, good and faithful servant. He offers them more, and says, go forth and enjoy what I have made for you. And then there's the one who, this is the part that actually kind of kills me. It's not a person who squandered it or threw it away or wasted it. It's a person who just chose to do nothing with what his master gave him. And that person not only did not receive a well done or receive more, that person actually just basically wasn't serving his master at all. And his master said, get him out. It's a ridiculous and hard parable at times. Now, it's worth noting that whenever Jesus teaches in parables, he is teaching in a way that is meant to be uh, easily, easily understood. And so he uses some pretty heavy language at times, right? So he's trying to draw dichotomies whenever he does it. And so we need to remember that what we're allowed to pull from it is the main point of what Christ is teaching here. And the main point of what Christ is teaching is that those who have been entrusted with something, have a responsibility to do something worthwhile with it. 
If you have been entrusted with something, you have a responsibility to do something worthwhile with it. And not worthwhile for yourself, but worthwhile for the one who entrusted it to you. The one who made five talents didn't make five more for himself. He made five more for his master. The one who made two didn't make two more for himself to keep. He made two more for his master, right? So it's not what's worthwhile to you. It's what's worthwhile to the one who has entrusted it to you. Now, within this story, it's quite apparent that the one who is being, the one who entrusts is God. That's what the parable is sort of pointing at. And the ones who things are being entrusted to are those who are, well, us, honestly. See, everything in the world has been entrusted to us. If you don't believe that, just check out the Genesis story, right? So in the Genesis story, creation occurs, and everything is made. Heavens, earth, animals, plants, people, everything is made, right? And Adam and Eve are made. And then God says, go forth, be, multi- be fruitful, multiply, fill the land, and take dominion over it. So God created everything and then put it into the care of us. Everything in creation is under our care, but not for our own benefit. We're caring for it on his behalf. This is why... Uh, we care about the world so much because it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to him. So in this parable, you see that what has been given to these servants, they are responsible for. If that is what Christ is saying to his disciples, if this is what the kingdom of God is like, what do you think his disciples were supposed to carry away with, this is what Christ has given me, this is what the king has given me? What do you think were some things that they probably would have heard Jesus say, or thought Jesus would be saying, this is something that you have been entrusted with. Give me some, toss them out. What do you think? Yeah, his words are a big one. Like his teaching, his proclamation were ones that were entrusted to him, and he entrusted them to carry it further than he would. And they certainly did, right? So in Jesus' day, he had about 120 followers people who are actually his close followers. There are multiple crowds around him as well, uh, but not all of them really got it. But 120 people kind of got what he said. And from those 120, we have Christianity nowadays. A couple billion people in it. See, they took what he had planted, and they did more with it than they had to begin with, his teaching. What else? The lives they lived is probably a big one, right? So a lot of what Jesus was teaching them and pushing them to do was to learn what it means to actually live the way he lived. That's what discipleship is. It's walking next to someone so closely that you can see the way that they lived and you could actually mimic it well. So they're expected through the lives they live to actually gain something on behalf of the one that they are living it for. It's their responsibility. Now, here's the interesting thing. Disciples back in that day were supposed to follow so closely behind their masters that they are basically uh, stepping on the hem of his robe as he is walking. That's how closely they would follow those that they were following. They were to learn everything about how he lived. This is why whenever they're talking to Jesus, they're asking him random questions like, how do you pray? Because we're supposed to learn the way that you pray. Because if we learn the way that you pray, we'll be praying the way you do, and that'll be awesome. Because I'm supposed to know whatever special prayers you want me to know so that I can say them well. And Jesus is like, pray like this. God, you're awesome. You're bigger than anything. May what you want to happen, happen. Give me what I need to make sure that happens. Don't let me not glorify you with my life. That's basically it. He's like, just basics. He didn't actually teach them a big, long, elegant, massive prayer they're supposed to be praying every day. He said, pray for these things, right? They would ask him, how do we pray? What do you mean whenever you do this? Uh, he, they would ask him why he did things. And he usually answered in parables, just so you know. He was never very straightforward in his answers. He was kind of mean like that at times, but in a good way. But also, if you answer in a non-straightforward way, the people that you're teaching have to think about what you're saying. And if you actually spend time thinking about it, then that means you're going to probably internalize it a little better. Bless you. And as we read through... And we think about things like, oh, all of creation was handed over to our dominion for his purposes. What do we as people do with that creation? What was the first thing that we as people did 
we were handed this awesome thing to take dominion over, and we, well, we, we first we broke it, right? We, we, we <laughs> right? Oh, this is sweet. Yeah, I'll give some names to stuff. Uh, and boom, we broke everything, right? Everything is broken because of us. We don't do a great job at taking dominion over the world on behalf of God. For some reason, we mess it up pretty often, right? But it's a worthwhile endeavor to try and. Hit my next slide real quick, if you don't mind. We have to remember that nothing belongs to us. So I want you to just look around here. Just look around this, the people that you're next to. Look at each other. Come on. You don't belong to each other. Uh, you both belong to Jesus. Look at the stuff you brought with you. Look at your phones. Everyone look at your phones right now. Y'all have one. I know it. Oh, awesome. Wait a minute. Okay. Wait, you still have one then. Oh, that's a pretty... Now I want to go through a philosophical concept. Right now. If she does not have it with her, does she really have one? Or... No. Yeah. That phone... Yeah. It's like Schrodinger's phone. That's right. <laughs> The things that you have don't actually belong to you. They are his. He created everything. He owns everything. He made everything. The cattle on the thousand worlds belongs to him. That means all the metal in your pocket belongs to him too. Including all the paper. It's all his. Right? Everything belongs to him. Uh, look at yourself in the best possible way you can. Everywhere? I don't know why I looked up. I'm not up there. But still. You, personally, belong to him. Not only do you belong to him because he created you, sustains you, uh, and that he is the one who actually knits you together, that your literal molecules and atoms exist because of his decision. Not only that, but he also then rebought you, even though you were already his. Scripture says that you were purchased at a price. You were bought at a price. And that price is Christ. He purchased you with himself. So you were already owned, and he decided to pay for you again. That's pretty awesome. You belong to him. So what? Next slide for me. So what? What does it look like to practice stewardship over everything? Well, I'm going to tell you this. Whenever churches teach stewardship messages, what they usually say next is, that means that it is your responsibility to give 10% of your money to a church, right? Oh, and then if you do so, perfect, good steward, awesome. Next, have a great day. Bye, everybody, right? Fun story, that's not taught in Scripture anywhere. I love telling people that while also dread it, but you need to know it. The concept of tithing a tenth of your income to a local church is a concept foreign to Scripture. For multiple reasons. It's often pulled from places in the Old Testament, uh, but if you look through the Old Testament laws, they didn't just give a tenth of their stuff. They actually gave about 30% of everything they had, including the first amount of everything they received ever, over to the priests, who were those who ran the national worship, right? Uh, they actually ran the temple, which is a little bit different than what we have going on today, right? We don't worship in a temple. I don't need to upkeep this place on behalf of an entire world and buy all the animals necessary to sacrifice to cause atonement to happen, right? It doesn't matter. That's not actually the case. If you're trying to follow Old Testament laws with how you give, make sure that any time that you have a, a son, you sacrifice a bull so that that son's paid for. Right? Enjoy finding a bull. Two turtle doves if you're poor. Hence why Jesus' parents went and offered that whenever he was born. Just so y'all know. Yeah. Tithing is not a biblical concept. Now, being generous with our money, oh, obviously and certainly a biblical concept. Being willing to give to what is necessary uh, for Christ to be glorified, sure, a biblical concept. Uh, being willing to use your funds to care for those around you, hugely biblical concept, right? And all of these things are indeed biblical concepts, but not in the easy way that we sometimes try to make it, right? If I were to just say to you, I want 10% of your money, it's easy for you to do the math on. Sweet, thanks, I appreciate it. But 10% of a person's income is really not that much in this day and age. 
like it can be. If you're poor, it's a lot. If you're rich, it's nothing. It's the Bill Gates effect, right? If I give away 10% of my income, it hurts. He gives away 10%, he only has like $37 billion left, whatever. It's far more than that. I forget what he actually is worth now. 30, oh, the 30 billionth person is like the 29th billion person in the world. No, that's because of a Forrest Gump math I did before. You guys are laughing at this. So, fun story, Apple hit $1,000 in valuation. Math time, this is completely off topic from the sermon, but I have to do it, I already started, it's necessary. Apple hit $1,000 in valuation, right? In the movie Forrest Gump, uh, <laughs> Forrest Gump purchased, or was given a gift of Apple stock. Uh, they calculated out approximately when that would have been, it would have been the time when they went through their second round of funding, basically, uh, and how much stock he would have received for the amount of money and what it was worth then. And they, 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 they took that and they actually worked it out so that over the course of years, if he had not sold any of his stock, what his money would be worth now? And Forrest Gump would be worth over $30 billion right now. Yeah. And I posted that on Facebook and I said it would have made him the 29th richest person in the world. And the first response I was, $30 billion is only the 29th richest person in the world? I'm like, totally is. They're a lot more above that. Yeah. To Jeff Bezos, 10% of his income is literally nothing because he can basically buy the country seven times over. Oh, I can only buy it six times now, right? It doesn't matter. To me and Christy, honestly, 10% is not a huge chunk of our income. We can survive on 90% easily. To someone who makes $7 an hour and is trying to feed two kids, 10% is a huge amount of their income, right? To the point where to give it might make it impossible to feed his family or afford rent. So my goodness, if you're having trouble feeding your family, I don't want your money. If you're having trouble feeding your family, talk to us and let's see if we can help you. Like it's literally the opposite, right? Flip side. Within the U.S., most of us tend to make enough that what we make is relatively significant, at least against the rest of the world, right? So there's this concept called effective altruism, which states that the majority of the world lives in, not majority, but a lot of people in the world live in abject poverty that cannot even be seen within the United States. It's not possible. Uh, it's possible. We tend to have good enough safety nets that it's very hard to hit that level of poverty, which means $1,000 spent here does good, but $1,000 spent in a country like that to help feed and clothe people can feed and clothe like 30 people for a month. So we need to make sure that we're actually spending our money effectively and doing what we can to glorify people with it, right? It's a worthwhile endeavor. We need to remember that our money doesn't belong to us, it belongs to him. And we're called to care for it on his behalf and to exercise proper stewardship over it so that he is glorified through it. And this doesn't just mean the first 10%, this means literally all of it. How you spend your money matters because it matters to him. How you live matters. The relationships you have matter. The way in which you care for other people matters. The way in which you spend your time matters, right? It matters. And you're to exercise responsible care over all of those things. So you, as a person, are to exercise care over how you spend your time. How are you investing in yourself to be able to glorify God more? Let's just take a random concept with us. Who here has updated to iOS 12 yet? Who here is an iPhone person? iPhone people? Who here has updated to iOS 12? Yeah? I was on the beta program. Woo! Because I like it whenever my phone randomly turns off. It's wonderful. Yeah. All right? Who here has played with the screen time function yet? Anybody? Anybody? Go take a little gander if you're on iOS 12. Just look at your screen time function. It now breaks down how you're spending all of your time on your phone. How many hours you're spending on this app? How many hours you're spending on this app? What's going on here? It's wonderful and it's really cool. Except for whenever you realize, oh my goodness, I spent four hours and 37 minutes on Facebook yesterday. Largely reading things that don't matter or being mad at people. That's what you do on Facebook, right? Uh, those of you who are below my age, whatever social media you use, because I don't understand anything after Facebook, <laughs> all right? That is a bunch of time being spent. Do you want a very practical way to practice good stewardship a little bit more, just a little one? 
take a look at that screen time function, see how much time you're spending on stupid things that don't matter, and go ahead and say, okay, I spend four hours a day on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Huh. Tomorrow I'm spending three hours and 40 minutes, and I'm going to spend 20 minutes reading scripture or praying or spending time with my family or talking to someone about something that matters. Right? Just take a little bit of time out of that chunk and invest it somewhere where you'll get greater returns. Because you will. Do you get greater returns by having an argument with someone on Facebook or by sitting down with them for coffee? Which one builds a better relationship? Huh? <laughs> Who here has had their relationships grow and blossom and become more full and wonderful because of the amount of time you spend on Facebook? Extroverts don't count. I'm joking. <laughs> True. Yeah. So people who are, I want to say, unnaturally nice and kind can do this on Facebook. Yeah, right? People who have my personality certainly cannot. Because my personality reads what people say, and I say, well, that's dumb. <laughs> I either want to contradict this person, or I want to just ignore them. I contradict or annoy, right? Or ignore. Uh, I'm great at contradicting, just throwing it out there, in case you all want to know. If you want someone to be contrary, you talk to me. I will help. <laughs> oh, I like you. I like you. Thank you. <laughs> Figure out how you're spending your time and spend it better. That's an easy one. Hey, how about this? Uh, whenever you're with your family, how much of it is staring at a TV screen? And so y'all are in a row, and y'all are looking in that direction. Hey, consider if that's something that might be worth not doing as much. Right? Spend time with your family. Talk to them about Jesus. How many of you spend more time on sports than you do with your family or with your Lord? Right? Or video games or whatever. When's the last time, if you're a follower of Christ now, when's the last time you had a good and meaningful conversation with someone you care about who doesn't know Jesus? Not even necessarily about him yet. You can glorify God without straight up telling the gospel, uh, though at some point that's probably worth doing. We talked about evangelism last week. It's worth having that conversation. But just showing that you care to someone, how much time are you spending on that versus other things throughout your week? You steward your time. Does that make sense? Your resources, are you effectively stewarding them? Are you effectively taking care of the world around you? This is one that actually annoys me a lot. Uh, people talk about whether or not climate change exists, and they tend to talk about it in the manner of saying that we as people have no ability to adversely affect the world that much. Therefore, climate change has to be fake. Have you guys seen someone basically walk through that theology? God would never let that happen. He wouldn't let people affect it that much. Therefore, it's got to be fake. You don't have to worry about it. Anyone here heard that? Yes, no, yes? If y'all are on no, my goodness, who are your friends? I like them. This is not even getting into whether or not climate change is true. I'm just talking about that thread of theology, saying that people can't mess up the world that bad. And I'm like, we caused the world to break. Yeah, we can definitely mess up the world that bad. We did it by eating fruit. What do you think we can do if we put our minds to it? <laughs> we're called to care for our world in whatever way possible we are given dominion over the world for Christ's glory so we should care for it in whatever way possible this to me means even if the world doesn't boil because of our actions that we probably still shouldn't be polluting the crap out of it duh right so okay you don't think the climate is changing but how do you feel about breathing it all in hmm? that's fine And we're supposed to care for our relationships with people, including our enemies. 
every relationship you have has been entrusted to you by Christ for his glory and not your own. That's your family. That's your friends. That's the people that you like at work. That's the people you don't like at work. That's the people that you actually think of as your enemies. Those people have been entrusted to you by your creator for his glory. And you are called to appropriately uh, invest in those relationships for his glory, including with people you don't like. It's not hard to invest in things you like. It's hard to put time into things that are hard. But it's worth it. It's so worth it. What does good stewardship look like? It's actually putting your time to good use. It is putting your resources to good use. It is putting your mental energy to good use. For God's glory and not your own. Next, please. How can we grow as stewards? Basically, in everything I just said, I forgot to change this slide a while ago. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The biggest one again. Have you guys ever heard that if you don't actually record something, you will never know whether or not you're doing better at it? If you don't actually uh, evaluate yourself, You have no way to know whether or not you are growing in an area. Hey, Creed, what's that uh, acronym you gave me whenever we were talking about what you're aiming for? Huh? Oh, that's also a good one. You gave me one that's actually from business. Uh, API? KPI? I'm always like, APIs? I know what those are. Wait a minute, no. KPI, which means key progress indicator. So, fun story. I was having a conversation with Creed uh, this past week, and I was talking about the fact that it was bothering me that the building wasn't fully put together yet. It was annoying the crap out of me that I didn't have this building put together, that there's still things that need fixed in the roof, that there's still things that need fixed in the ceiling, that there's still dirt everywhere, there's still trash places, that I still have not gotten this place sparkling, uh, which is hilarious because I don't think buildings are important. Uh, because where we meet matters less than the gathering aspect itself, right? We are the church, not the place. But I still like things to look better. I like things to be better put together. And so I was mad, and I was talking to Creed about this, and I'm like, Creed, I know it feels weird to say, but I spent so much time working with people this week, I didn't get to get any of the building crap I wanted done, done. Uh, and so I, like, I met with like 10 different people and had coffee with them and talked to them and things. He's like, oh, okay, yeah. You have bad KPI, basically. I'm like, what do you mean? I don't even know if I said that right. I probably didn't, but still, I'm going to go ahead and go with it. You have bad key progress indicators. Uh, You are basing whether or not you're doing a good job off of whether or not the building is done, as opposed to whether or not you're able to affect the lives of people. I'm like, yeah, I do that. And he's like, well, it sounds like you actually spent time with people, so this week was a success. And it was. So I'm going to have you guys do something to keep me accountable. One is this. If you find out that I spent four days a week trying to build this building up and bring it up to what I want it to look like and spent no time talking to any of you, yell at me. I'm not even joking. You can come up and be like, you are dumb. And just yell in my face. Because that is not me properly investing my time in what Christ has called me to do. It's not me investing who I am what Christ called me to do. He didn't call me to be a building manager. He called me to proclaim Christ and help you grow. That's what I'm supposed to do. So yell at me if I'm doing it badly. And here's one that I'm going to try very hard to stick to. We'll see if we can. As I am working on the building, I am no longer going to be willing to do any of it by myself. So if y'all value the building being put together, please let me know when you're willing to come out and spend time with me and we can do it together. Because that way I'm not just wasting my time putting up lights in a building, I'm also spending time with one or more of you. Right? And that way that also means that as the building will hit the level at which you value it to be, right? As opposed to what I want, which hits perfectionism, which is bad. The building will hit the level in which it bothers you less. So if you're bothered by something, let me know whenever you want to meet with me and work on it. Make sense? All right. Otherwise, I'm going to try and focus on being a pastor, which is weird because I'm not good at it. I need to grow in that area. I need to invest some time learning how to do it better. 
Next slide, please. No slides. <gasps> that means we're basically done then. How do I carry this home? <laughs> Hold on a second. How do I land this plane? One moment here. <laughs> what? <laughs> huh? <laughs> and I have brought cake for every person. Have a good day. And I'm out. Smoke bomb. Run away. Okay. I want to be honest. I now, for the life of me, am now very upset that I have not made a habit of just carrying, like, poppers in my pocket so I can throw them down like I'm throwing a smoke bomb and run away. I should have had them since I've been a pastor. This is literally, right? This is, like, 13 years of wasted opportunities. I clean them up. It's fine. All right. I will sweep up my trash, separate out and recycle. Which, and I won't. I'll throw it away. So at City Church, we don't have membership. Many of you know this. We don't have membership here. Instead, what we have is stewardship because we believe that everyone is a member of the body of Christ and you are not beholden to have your loyalty be to city alone, right? If ever a time comes whenever I say you owe me your allegiance or you owe the church, your, my, you owe the church your allegiance or you owe the church all of your money or you owe the church all of your time, please go ahead and yell at me because at that point I'm becoming a cult leader, right? You don't owe me much of anything. You are not my people. You are his. He wants you where he wants you, and if that's here, wonderful, and I appreciate it, and if he wants you somewhere else, that is wonderful, and I appreciate it, right? But the people who are stewards of our church are those who recognize that one of the things God has given them responsibility over caring for is this section of his local body. And so people who realize, you know what? I am called not just to be a steward of my life, not just to be a steward of my things, not just to be a steward of my time, but I'm called to be a steward of the church and a steward of the church's things and a steward of the church's time. And that's what our membership looks like. If you are interested in becoming a steward, please feel free to let me know. I would love to have that conversation with you. We currently have about 12 of us. It's a pretty exclusive group, but not as much whenever you realize it's still like a quarter of our regular attendance. It's still pretty good. We would welcome anyone to be a part of it, right? It's a relatively high bar. Membership is often very easy to step into for churches, which is why churches often have higher membership roles, and they do numbers of people who come on a Sunday, numbers of people who gather together. We do the opposite. Our stewardship will likely always be lower than the number of people who come through our doors because we hope very much so that we are reaching out to people to the point that there are those who do not yet understand the fact they're supposed to be taking care of their local body of the church on a regular basis. And then as they come to this realization, there are still more people coming in. We should always have less stewards than we have people regularly joining with us to worship God. If we haven't, if we flip those numbers eventually, we have stopped effectively proclaiming Christ to a world that needs him. We've hit the point where we are now flipped over. I don't want to be at that point. So it's a process. You have to go through it. You have to sit down and talk and work through it and learn what stewardship means in every area of your life uh, that we could think of. I'm sure there's more. If you're interested, let me know. We'll work through on that. That doesn't get you off the hook if you're not a member of our local body, if you're not a steward. Because everything is his and not yours. And one of our callings as followers of Christ is to submit ourselves to him completely. This is what it means to recognize him as your Lord. It is submitting to his authority in all areas of your life. He is the one that matters, not us. And so as you grow as a follower of his, part of what you are to do is recognize more and more what it means to submit your entire life to him. So, final takeaway, spend some time this week praying. Spend some time this week talking to your Lord. Spend some time asking him to reveal to you any places where you may not have chosen to give up everything over to him. Ask him to reveal to you ways in which you could be a better steward of what he has given you. And be ready for him to show you. So whenever you see it, don't just say, yeah, I'm not, but I'm okay. I don't want to think about it. Think about it, pray about it, spend time on it.
Each of us has ways we can grow in this. I certainly can. I am not the best steward of my time. I'm not the best steward of my brain power. I watch far too much cutthroat kitchen for what I do as a job. <laughs> I, I see some of you just like, amen. But it's a good show, right? But still. I am not a great steward of my time. I could definitely improve in this. But here's the big thing, this one, that parable, the well done, good and faithful servant, right? I have to come back to this one because this is where the gospel sticks in. We read that and sometimes we may think to ourselves, oh good, I want to do everything perfectly so that I hear that whenever I die, right? I want to hear that phrase. I want to hear someone say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's what I want so much. It's what I long for and what I shoot for, right? So how can I most actively, appropriately uh, live my life so that I can get that phrase, so that I can earn it or I could deserve it, right? Here's the kicker. I'm not a good and faithful servant. Neither are you. There's been one good and faithful servant who has ever existed on this earth, who perfectly exercised stewardship in everything he did, who properly managed his relationships, his time, everything he has been given for the glory of God. And that person offered himself up for you. Whenever we die, if we are followers of Christ, he took upon himself what we deserve, and we gain what he deserved. So if you are his follower, because of what he has done, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because that is not being spoken directly to you. It's being spoken to the one who purchased you and cares for you. You'll get to hear it if you're his follower, even if you're not perfect, which is great because none of us would hear it then if we had to be perfect. This is why we offer ourselves up as his servants. This is why we give ourselves over to his lordship because we know that he cares for us even whenever we're not perfect and he will cover for us even whenever we're not perfect and he will show love whenever we're not perfect. He is the perfect one who makes it possible for us to even consider these things. So as you go this week, when you go to exercise stewardship, don't go because you have to to earn his favor. Go as a thank you for the favor he's shown. Amen? All right, I would say at this time we're going to partake in communion but Jake should be doing it, and I still don't see him anyway. Could someone go kick him and say, hey, it's communion time? Or just light kick? Yeah. Uh, if he's unavailable for it, please let me know. And I'll go ahead. And, yeah. So, how about them browns? They did, I guess. Yeah. I was like, something. I enjoyed the fact that one, one, and one best record they've had since like 94. <laughs> that makes me happy. Uh, they're beating the Steelers right now. At least they were. I don't know. Did the Steelers play again? I don't know this stuff. Huh? No, no. They're beating them in the rankings. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't need, here's the deal. I don't know anything about football, but I know people like talking about it. So you're welcome. That's me trying to reach out right there, people. I am in no way awkward. Right? Yeah. They used to say, how about them Dodgers, which I'm assuming is still a baseball team. Right? <laughs> Sorry, Ken. <laughs> He's just... <sighs> I'm going to pass this off to Jake. My apologies. But don't worry. That's like, the, that's like the third least awkward thing I did today. What? I was saying, how about them Browns? Oh. <laughs> they tied. Do you mind uh, moving this over? So, uh, sorry for the coffee to begin with. Uh, should be good to go. I think, uh, Doug, it, dude, it spilled water everywhere without it being plugged in. And so, Abby helped me clean up the mess. Thanks. But, uh, Thanks. Well, uh, what? Yeah. Did, did it do it again? Oh, the old, okay, okay. Oh, okay. So, but there's coffee now if you guys need it, but uh, I bring that up because like, I think so often in times in life, uh, the messy parts or the things that get in the way that aren't the most convenient um, is where those moments happen. 
Uh, and so most of the service, I got the wonderful opportunity to talk to Paul. Uh, and it was just so encouraging. Like, that wasn't going to happen if I didn't have to clean up that coffee. That wouldn't have happened unless, like, you know, uh, Doug was here and wanted to get coffee. I wanted to make sure that he had coffee. Like, it's through these messes that I think we can actually have some of the, the most genuine conversations. And I say that as if we believe that God has a will. If we believe that he gave of himself, he broke of himself, he poured himself out on our behalf. You know, God allowed those opportunities to happen. Instead of saying, um, at this moment in my life is when I'm going to serve somebody. At this moment in my life, I'm going to start caring about their suffering. It's recognizing that suffering is happening around us at all times. And are we being willing to see those opportunities? Are we allowing God to give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear? Or are we demanding that only at this time I'll listen to the suffering? Only at this time I'll choose to see what's going on that's not right. Um, and so throughout this week, I've actually been on vacation. And so it's been a season of me trying to be still, of me trying to reflect, of me trying to say, what are my issues? What are the things that I can be doing better for the church, for my wife, for what's going on? Uh, and for me, like, I don't know if you guys know this, I've, I've struggled with really bad depression in the past, suicide, um, anxiety, uh, and things of that manner. And in dealing with that, um, that will affect other people, that will affect those that you love, those that are close to you, and things like that. And this week was a really hard week for me, because what I've really struggled with is being still. I, I'm very good, or this sounds pompous, but I'm good at understanding bad situations. I'm good at understanding the, the suffering of life. I'm not good at being okay with the good parts of life. That's where I suffer. And, I, and often I project that onto God, is that God only wants me to suffer. God only wants me to have messy situations. When instead, I need to find peace and stillness in the joy, in the good that's happening. You know, and that can happen over spilt coffee. You know, so allow the opportunities that come up throughout your week to be opportunities for God to challenge you, for him to transform you, for us not to make an image of what we want our Jesus to be, but allow Jesus to transform you into what he ought, or what he thinks you ought to be. That he's not the, the white guy back there with the blue eyes and the blonde hair, but he's more than that. He's more than culture. He's more than race. And he can transform that, and he can transform any situation. So we offer an open communion policy here at City Church, and what that means is as long as you profess to be a Christian, that you profess that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, that he lived a perfect life, that he was crucified, that he was buried, and that he rose again, that he will return again. You're welcome to participate in communion with us. So when you feel ready, please feel free to come up and participate in communion.